Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist, and today we're investigating Wall Street's latest craze, special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. The way private companies go public and raise capital is changing, and everyone from super celebrities to retail investors wants a piece of the action. But are these so-called blank check firms just a craze, a useful innovation, or both. One way to think of SPACs is as a sort of rebellion to Wall Street's typical way of doing things. By offering an alternative to the traditional IPO, could SPACs transform tech investing and even supercharge innovation? For the good companies, it represents more leverage, more options, more opportunities, and, and in general, more power for those Silicon Valley entities they can play this game the right way. And how does this affect the post-Brexit battle to become the financial capital of Europe? Because the EU didn't grant Britain so-called equivalence, that European trading migrated to the continent and it ended up in Amsterdam. When you think of famous big investors, you might think of Warren Buffett, Peter Thiel, or perhaps Neil Shen. Former sports stars like Shaquille O'Neal and Colin Kaepernick probably aren't top of your list. But Mr O'Neal, famous in his basketball heyday for his signature Shaq Attack style, is joining a multitude of new entrants to the world of investment. And instead of the Shaq Attack, he's investing in the SPAC Attack. SPAC. The blank check bonanza or SPAC-a-palooza. SPAC, 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 SPAC. Everybody needs to have a SPAC. Last year, these companies raised more than $83 billion. We're barely a fifth of the way into 2021, and the total raised is already over $74 billion, according to the website SPAC Insider. And the total is rising fast. SPACs have been around as a financial vehicle for a couple of decades now. Alice Fullwood is The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. But for the most part, no one paid attention to them for almost all of that history because they were mostly a vehicle used by insignificant companies or ones that sort of couldn't go public via the traditional IPO process. But no one really paid attention until a deal struck in 2019 between a SPAC and Richard Branson, which took his company Virgin Galactic public. The reason this was so important as a deal is that prior to this, SPACs were dodgy vehicles for for dodgy companies. And Richard Branson is an extremely serious and well-respected investor. His firm was very legitimate and easily could have gone public any way that it chose. And it chose to go public by this slightly unexpected route. From then on, 
people really started to think about SPACs differently. And what you've seen through 2020 is this rush of investors and capital and company interest in these vehicles. So they really have snowballed in importance and popularity since that 2019 deal. What exactly are they? The usual journalistic shorthand is blank check company, which sounds like quite a tough sell for those trying to promote them. So what is the pitch that a SPAC founder gives to its prospective investors? When a company goes public via traditional IPO, it builds its prospectus, it goes on the road with an investment bank, and they talk about the company with investors, they gather up a big pool of investors who want to buy shares in the company, and they try to sort of hash out a price. And then it sort of lists publicly. But then in general, there's a lot of uncertainty in the process, you don't really know what price you'll go public at, you don't know how much capital you'll raise, the fees can be quite expensive. And it's sort of a long process that requires a lot of regulatory disclosures. With a SPAC, what happens is that an investor issues this SPAC right at the beginning of the process, and it goes public then. And a bunch of investors buy shares in the SPAC, and that determines the amount of capital that this SPAC holds. But the SPAC is publicly listed from inception. So you already have a publicly listed company that's just a pot of money. And the sort of head of the SPAC will go out and look for a firm that he thinks or she thinks looks like a good bet. They will then negotiate one-on-one, but it has some advantages over that traditional process. The first is that it can happen very, very quickly, much more quickly than a traditional IPO. The second is that there seems to be sort of more certainty over how much capital the company will raise and at what price than you get with a traditional IPO process. And those advantages for the company mean that more and more of them seem to be choosing to use this route. So blank check company doesn't sound too bad a description in a way, but why is it that they are suddenly so popular? Where's the enthusiasm come from? So I mentioned two advantages that SPACs have over traditional IPOs. And one of them is that there's less uncertainty in the process for the company. And the other one is that it's fast. And I think it's important to understand that those two things were were very important in 2020. It was a year in which companies needed to raise a lot of capital very quickly. And at the same time, markets were super volatile. If you started an IPO process in March, you might not go public till September. Think about what happened to the market in that time. You would have had no idea how much capital you were going to be able to raise. So the innate advantages of SPACs were sort of uniquely positioned to boom in 2020. In terms of the enthusiasm for people setting these things up, there's long been this tension between investment banks and IPOs and and Silicon Valley. And a lot of tech firms think that the sort of IPO process is not very good. And a lot of sort of venture investors have sort of set these vehicles up. You've also seen hedge funds setting them up. And I think it's partly because there does seem to be this appetite from a lot of interesting companies to go public in a different way. And so investors are taking advantage of that demand. There is another way, though, that firms can bypass the IPO process and go public in a different way. And that is via direct listing. There are a few big firms that have already chosen this route, including Spotify and Slack. Roblox is another firm that's about to list this week via direct listing and Coinbase, the sort of big crypto platform, is planning to go public via direct listing as well. And that's basically where the firm doesn't get to issue any more shares. It's just that people who already hold shares in the firm get an opportunity to sell those shares by going straight to the market makers. So these are the big firms that stand between the stock exchange and investors. And you basically sort of give those shares to the market makers and they distribute them at whatever the market price is. And so that incurs basically no fees at all. And it's a much, much cheaper and very quick way of going public. If your goal is to go public, if your goal is to raise capital, you might need to choose one of these other routes. 
And SPACs in particular seem attractive to tech firms who really think that the traditional process for going public, the IPO, has not served the needs of the Valley and tech investors and tech founders well. And so there's long been a sort of push to try and go public in a different way. And the popularity of SPACs is making that a very significant reality for many tech companies considering going public. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. As Alice said, nowhere have SPACs been more enthusiastically adopted than in the home of disruption itself, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has thrived by inventing new ways of doing things. Alexandra Switch-Bass is our senior correspondent for tech and society. And so SPACs hold a particular allure to people in the Valley. One way to think of SPACs is as a sort of rebellion to Wall Street's typical way of doing things. One veteran venture capitalist who I spoke to, Roloff Botha, who's a partner at Sequoia Capital, called the IPO process chicanery and grand larceny. He did not mince his words. And I think Roloff speaks for a lot of people when he expresses that view. So we spoke with Nirav Tolia, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who founded Nextdoor.com, the world's largest social media site for neighbors. Nirav is the lead independent director on IPOD, which is a SPAC that is led by Chamath Palihapitaya, who is Silicon Valley's SPACer in chief. He's raised billions of dollars in SPACs, including Virgin Galactic. And Nirav explained what SPACs offer compared to the more traditional IPOs. The SPAC phenomenon is partially in vogue because probably the number one benefit, which is they're much faster to get done than an IPO. You can be targeted by a SPAC sponsor and literally be a public company three to six months later, which is light speed compared to traditional processes. And as you know, in Silicon Valley, speed is often at a premium. The speed to get public is the number one reason I would say that the second reason to consider a SPAC if you're a private Silicon Valley company is that you have price certainty on the value of your shares. And so typically in a traditional IPO, you use a banker, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, some large prominent bracket bankers, and they will go out to the market and they will find a price for you. The issue will be priced and then we'll start trading. And oftentimes you see a massive first day bump or you, you you get the sense that that price discovery was maybe not as efficient as it could have been. In the case of a SPAC, before it goes public, before it gets de-SPAC, so as to speak, that company knows exactly how much money they will raise and how much dilution the company will take on even before they agree to merge with the SPAC. So there is an incredible amount of price certainty before the process begins. And then the third and final, I would say, major advantage of a SPAC is that with a SPAC, a company is allowed to make forward-looking statements about its prospects for growth. And this is quite important for Silicon Valley companies because unlike traditional companies that would have a lot of cash flow and a, a fairly predictable business model by the time they choose to go public, Silicon Valley companies are very high growth and they tend to favor growth over profits, particularly in the early years. And so if you're able to go to the market and tell them why you maybe have not been profitable, what you've been investing against, and when you think those gains will start to come down the pipe, you have a much better chance of, of gaining a valuation that you think is fair. Whereas in the traditional IPO process, you cannot make what SEC calls forward-looking statements. You cannot talk about your future plans. You cannot publicize 
that the investments that you've currently made, you believe will turn into these kinds of benefits long-term. So in a nutshell, those are the three advantages, speed, price certainty, and forward-looking statements. So the criticism of IPOs is that they take a very long time and that they're inefficient, that Wall Street banks pressure companies to price their shares low so that there's a pop on the first day of trading. With SPACs and direct listings, there's no pressure for a price to pop. And there's also less money left on the table. So if tech companies are being pressured to price their shares low, they're leaving money on the table. So in 2020, underpricing led to $30 billion of unrealized gains for newly public companies and their employees. It's quite a bit that's being left on the table. So clearly, Silicon Valley has played a role in the way SPACs have taken off as an instrument. But what about the other way around? Are they affecting the way tech startups go about their business? SPACs will certainly change the market for startups. There was a class of startup that reached a certain point uh, in its growth that was not able to raise another round of private financing. And so SPACs are potentially really interesting for this type of firm, because instead of trying to raise another round for private investment, investors who may or may not be interested, they're able to look to public market investors, ultimately, who would then provide an opportunity for future growth. So here's what Nirav Tolia thinks about how SPACs are changing the startup ecosystem. The best companies in Silicon Valley and many of potentially not the best companies now have another option as they're considering not just going public, but late stage financings. And so this will actually have a fairly significant change to the Silicon Valley landscape. More companies will go public. Some of those companies may not be ready to go public. Uh, There will be some, some bursting of the bubble, so as to speak. But I think for the good companies, it represents more leverage, more options, more opportunities, and, and in general, more power for those Silicon Valley entities that can play this game the right way. Nirav told us how he thinks SPACs are changing the makeup of investors as well. For many, many, many years, the largest returns in Silicon Valley have been generated by early stage investors, not retail investors. So typically it's the venture capitalist who put in a dollar and may get a hundred dollars back. The retail investor who's buying a public offering may put in a dollar and if he does well or, or she does well, get a dollar 25 back. And in a balanced portfolio, while you don't want to take massive risks, it's actually quite attractive to take some predictable bets, and then some very, very unpredictable, potentially high alpha bets. And that hasn't really been available to the retail investor because public market companies tend to be more traditional. Uh, With a SPAC, some of these companies are quite speculative. The ones that have no financial track record, the ones that are raising a lot of capital, the ones that are trying to do really, really, really ambitious things. And for retail investors, this represents an opportunity for them to make a kind of venture capital investment but in the public market. And while I would never recommend to a retail investor that his or her entire portfolio would consist of very high risk SPACs, there is a place in a balanced portfolio for that kind of of risk-taking vehicle. And if it pays off, it can pay off really big. The reason that allowing retail investors to participate in venture-type investments is so important is because what we're seeing in the financial landscape in general is a kind of democratization where even folks that don't have access, that don't have connections, that aren't endowment funds or CEOs that have the right to invest in venture capital firms, they now have access to some of these 
incredible opportunities. If you wanted to invest in Google or Tesla or Facebook in its early days, you just couldn't because the only ones who had access to those securities were the venture capitalists and the early stage investors. Now there will be some SPAC companies that will have returns like the ones I just named, and the retail investors will have the opportunity to participate in that ride. So that's one of the really important pieces of the SPAC revolution. Our thanks to Nirav Tolia and to Alexandra Switch-Bass. In a moment, we'll look to Europe and how SPACs are influencing the battle to become the continent's new financial capital. But first, my usual request. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, now's your chance. There's a special introductory offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. This week, you can read our analysis of how President Joe Biden got his enormous stimulus bill through the Senate. Our commodities editor digs into what's driven the price of oil above $70 a barrel for the first time in nearly two years. And we ask, could the pandemic pave the way for a new age of the welfare state? All that and more at economist.com slash podcast offer and the links in notes for this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever since Britain voted to leave the European Union, a number of continental cities, including Paris and Frankfurt, have been vying to snatch business from London, Europe's dominant financial hub. In January of this year, tech-savvy Amsterdam seemed to have gained a head start, overtaking London as the largest share-trading centre in Europe that month at €9.2 billion worth to London's €8.6 billion. But London won't give up easily. On March 2nd, Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, announced reforms to make London the new SPAC capital of Europe. So these new changes to London's regulatory systems, once active, they will solidify London's status as the top dog amongst European financial centre and also Europe's top player in the SPAC craze. Vendlin from Bredo is our European finance correspondent. So among the changes planned in London are that dual class share ownership will now be allowed to let founders keep greater voting powers as you can see in big American tech companies. And the city will also cut the amount of equity that a company must sell to outsiders to 15% from 25 So that's the current threshold for premium listing. Of course, this is happening not long after it was revealed that London had lost its status as the biggest share trading centre in Europe to Amsterdam. I assume that's not entirely a coincidence. No, not at all. I mean, there have been whispers for a while that some of the UK's most promising tech firms were considering listing in New York because New York is more attractive for SPACs, or at least was until those changes. So, for instance, last year, the British electric vehicle company Arrival listed in America through a SPAC. And then in February, the Financial Times reported that the car site Kazoo and the healthcare app 
Babylon was planning the same. Of course, now the stakes are especially high in the wake of Brexit. So as you mentioned, in February, there was great fanfare that Amsterdam had overtaken London as Europe's largest share trading center for European shares. I think it was a very symbolic figure and a wake-up call for London. The reason is that financial services were not included in the Brexit deal because the EU didn't grant Britain so-called equivalents, which would have let London basically trade European shares unhampered. That European trading migrated to the continent and it ended up in Amsterdam. And so suddenly Amsterdam picked up all that business. And in January, its European share trading volume was higher than London's. So it's partly at least a Brexit phenomenon, but how much of a role in all this did these special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs, play? It did play a role, partly via some traditional IPOs. So Vivendi, which is a big French media group, said that it is now planning to list Universal Music, its record label in Amsterdam. And in January, Poland's InPost, which is a a big Polish e-commerce group, listed in Amsterdam and raised 2.8 billion euros. It's the biggest continental European listing since 2018. But London hasn't lost its financial crown yet, has it? And how much will this change regulation help it? No, absolutely not. London is still the European financial centre, and that's by quite a long margin. You just have to look at Dutch IPOs. Last year, only two companies went public in Amsterdam, whereas in London, 33 companies IPO'd on the London Stock Exchange. So this year, 11 firms have already listed in London, and in Amsterdam, it was one. There's still a big gap between London and the rest. Wendelin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Simon. So clearly everyone wants to be part of the SPAC club. But how will this craze play out? Are SPACs here to stay as a new route for investment and growth? Even shifting the balance of power in financial centres, perhaps permanently? Or will the bubble burst, as many have before? So in America last year, half of all IPO capital was raised via SPACs. Here's Alice Fullwood, The Economist Wall Street correspondent again. So as a signal of how important they are, that's a very sizable magnitude. What we can't really tell quite yet is how significant and important the firms that are going public via them will ultimately be. It's clear that sort of everyone wants to be part of the club. They're raising a lot of capital. They do now have to spend that capital on decent firms And only about a quarter of the SPACs that were issued last year have already found a deal. So you have most of the capital still left to play with. And it's very clear that the sort of first leg of this, the sort of excitement of raising capital has made them important. The second leg that they pull this off, we have yet to see. And I think that will determine how important SPACs continue to be as a financial vehicle going forwards. Clearly, it's a sort of craze. That must carry some risks, doesn't it? And how easy is it for investors to tell the crazy from the financially sensible? So one of the problems that SPACs have at the moment is that in the past, at least, they've not been a good bet for shareholders that hold on to the company that the SPAC buys. If you looked at the financial performance of SPACs issued in the first half of 2020 and before, most of them underperformed 
stock indexes on sort of three, six and 12 month horizons. More importantly, I guess, as a comparison, they more dramatically underperformed IPO indexes that look at how firms that went public via IPO did. SPAC backers would say that this is partly the result of the sort of SPAC holds on to more of the value of the company for the founders. But I do think that there is this sort of tension right now, which is that you wouldn't think that if they continue to underperform in general, that investors will sort of keep backing them. And you might have to see sort of some better performance over the long run from SPAC-backed companies for them to survive, I expect. But is that problem fixable, though? I mean, you describe a tension. It sounds almost like a, uh, an unresolvable contradiction. A lot of what drives that underperformance seems to be the structure of these SPACs. So, for example, when a SPAC does a deal with a company, there are two things that happen. One is that typically the founder of the SPAC gets given a sort of generous slice of the shares of the company for very little fee. So he dilutes the original investors in the SPAC. And then at the same time, these sort of warrants that I've talked about, these sweeteners that encourage people to invest in the SPAC in the early stages, they can pay out and they pay out in sort of additional shares um, in the company as well. So they dilute the original investors as well. And this dilution that occurs seems to be what drives a lot of the underperformance relative to indexes and relative to IPO. And so that's sort of the way that SPACs have traditionally been structured. What you are seeing is a move to push back on the size of that dilution and the magnitude of the sweeteners. And you would think that as you know, the SPAC founders become more legitimate, they won't need to provide as many incentives to get people to invest in the SPAC in the first place. If a big reason why they underperform is the sort of dilutionary structure and the fact that there are all these incentives, then ultimately you'd think that as SPACs become or continue to be legitimate, that that dynamic might go away. But it's also possible that they'll always underperform IPOs because SPACs in general incentivize sort of a deal at any price, whereas IPOs, you have a sort of investment bank managing what the price of a firm will be. So I don't know that it's totally unresolvable, but we will have to wait and see how it evolves. But from the way you're talking, Alice, it sounds as if you expect SPACs to be around for a while, that they're here to stay. So is, is your conclusion that they are a useful addition to the array of financial instruments at investors' disposal? I think so. They're definitely useful from the perspective of companies. So there used to only be one way for a firm to go public and sort of list its its company. And that was via IPO. And you've seen the development over the past five years or so, really, of these sort of two alternative methods. And competition between methods for going public is probably a good thing ultimately for companies and ultimately for investors as well, because you would think that competition between these various methods will ultimately drive down the frictions and fees associated with all of them. So it's very clear that SPACs have been very hyped. There's definitely a mania right now. It is important to separate that mania and how silly it can seem at times from fundamentally the transition which has happened, which is that there's now more competition and choice in methods for going public. Alice Fullwood, thanks very much. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us, or better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Amika Shortino-Nolan and Steve Hankey. The editor is Sandra Schmuley. I'm Simon Long. And in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>